Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. The banks are broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians, to prison, it will continue. Gentlemen, boys and girls from around the road, gather around. It's time for another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. Today is Monday, April 19th, 2021. We are talking, that's right, Texas A&M Bitcoin Conference 2021, day two. That's right. It's a recap. Everything from day two at the Texas A&M Bitcoin Conference in College Station. You know what? Day two was, I think, way better than day one. I'm calling it now. I'm saying it is so, ladies and gentlemen. First off, we start off with Parker Lewis. This guy just hits you with a double dose of macroeconomics that you already know because we've been covering it like a sum of a gun here <laughs> on Thriller Premium. But that's okay. We learned it all from Parker, right? And it's funny. We just saw him. I mean, I just saw him on Thursday. He was on a chain capital. He was at the barbecue extravaganza for Bitcoin. So many people there. There's like hundreds of people cramped in a room, you know, at that Bitcoin dev meetup. It was a lot of fun. But he made it there on Saturday and it was it was uh, really informative. He, he went out and shared all his knowledge and he explained a lot of the things we kind of already have been covering here. But still, a lot of people got caught up. So take a listen as he talks about the macroeconomics of Bitcoin and why it is at a faster click this year and since last year, March 2020. Stuff that you already know, but a good refresher for people that um, might have just subscribed here recently. So take a listen. Thank you. 
And the deeper that I went down the Fed rabbit hole, the more that I came to the conclusion that QE, one, does not work. It can't work. It actually causes the problem to become bigger. And that because of the construction of the financial system and the degree of leverage, that trillions of more of QE would be required. And people would look at me and they would say, well, you couldn't have predicted COVID. And I would say, and it will be something else in the future. And that as I'm also researching Bitcoin, I start to form a understanding as to how and why Bitcoin is able to enforce a fixed supply cap of 21 million. And that when I think about Bitcoin, everything starts and stops there. It's all about a fixed monetary regime. And it's easy to say that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, but understanding how it's possible for something to be finitely scarce um, is something that is probably the greatest innovation that we've ever seen. Research, they are converging to one, which is Bitcoin is the solution to quantitative easing. For those people that want to opt out of endless monetary debasement, Bitcoin is their option. And when I think about the Austrian School of Economics, which I'm not, but I think that as people come to appreciate Austrian economics based on their own real life experience versus what might be taught in school, that they become Austrians, especially as they start to understand Bitcoin. And the way that I think about it is there, there may be many schools of economic thought, but they really fall on, on one fault line, which is there's people that believe that active management of the money supply uh, has positive economic benefits. And there's people that believe the opposite. And there's basically the Austrians that believe the opposite and everybody else. Um, and I think that the core of that is, uh, and the way that I think about Bitcoin and why it will be so fundamentally transformative is that if you have a currency regime that has a fixed supply, that that currency's pricing mechanism will be far more, um, not just precise, but it will carry the least amount of noise. And that we all might take for granted, and, and one of the, the classic Austrians is Frederick Hayek, and he talks about the pricing mechanism as one of the greatest inventions of, of ever created by humans, but that it was an accidental one. It was one that wasn't invented by conscious design, but that it's also its folly that people take for granted prices and the ability to objective, objectively measure value. And that's essentially what money does. Um, and that when the Fed and central banks debase the money supply or even destroy money, what they are doing ultimately is mucking up our communication channel, the most important communication channel, which is the price of money and the price of all things as denominated in money. And that uh, a free marketist or an Austrian would say that, that if you ever manipulate the money supply, you are causing imbalance and economic distortion. You are actually causing it, which when I think about the central banking model, whether it's a monetarist school or a Keynesian school, they're all the same to me because they all ultimately end at the same place, which is from central command, we can manage the money supply and come to a better outcome. Um, and when you think about the Mises of the world or the Hayek's of the world, they would say what money is, is it's the most efficient way that humans can communicate knowledge to each other. Um, all value is subjective. Money is the economic good that emerges on the market that allows us to um, objectively measure something that is inherently subjective. Um, and that if, if when you manipulate the money supply, if you print $3 trillion, 
all you are doing is making it more difficult for humans to communicate. And when you do that, you allow imbalance to sustain. And when you have imbalance sustained, you get the financial crisis and you get the next financial crisis to come. And I really think that Bitcoin and the fundamental solves that because it takes away the, the ability of people to print money. And it will allow humans, Americans, people all over the world uh, to more directly interact with, with the least amount of distortion. Okay. Um, Parker, I, I had a question for you. Uh, the original white paper, the original uh, Satoshi's white paper, really uh, discussed Bitcoin as a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. But now it seems like the narrative is much more on digital gold and using this as a store of value. Um, do you want to comment on, on that? Do you believe that we're in a cycle where we were going to begin with store of value and then eventually land in bit payments, as Hagen is saying? Or, or what, what do you think? Yeah, I, the way that I think about it is that all money has to start out with a property of being capable of storing value. And that the economic good that is able to fulfill the function of money, which is unique from other economic goods in, in the sense that it's both scarce and able to store value as well as be functional in trade and in facilitating exchange, that that is where we are heading. And that I think the, the cornerstone or the keystone of Bitcoin is it's 21 million supply cap. And I often tell people that if Bitcoin credibly enforces a fixed supply of 21 million, it will obsolete all other money. And as it does that, like all other money will go away. It will demonetize gold, it will demonetize dollars, euros, yen. Um, there, everything is relative, nothing is in a vacuum. So there might be certain you know, small monetary uses for other goods, but that as Bitcoin commercializes, I think about there was a time when gold was ore in the ground and a monetary system was built around it. That is the, the same analogy for Bitcoin. Today, Bitcoin is ore in the ground and we are working on actively developing the monetary system. As more people opt into Bitcoin and it's 21 million supply cap, when a billion people have Bitcoin, when 2 billion people have Bitcoin, it will not be volatile. When, when the market becomes liquid, when it absorbs all other currencies, um, liquidity, it's, it, its liquidity will actually diversify. It will move from currency pairs to people saying, pay me in Bitcoin. Tesla saying, pay me in Bitcoin. Russell Kung saying, pay me in Bitcoin. The board of MicroStrategy saying, pay me in Bitcoin. That once you understand why you should store your value in Bitcoin, the leap to accepting it as a, as a payment for direct goods and services becomes very easy and logical, but we're, we're in the process of building those rails. Um, and so the, it all comes back to 21 million. That is why Bitcoin stores its value. And I think about it as an A-B test. A lot of times people say Bitcoin's complicated. What's not complicated is currency A has a fixed supply, currency B does not. Currency B is your, your government currency, and they printed $3 trillion of it last year. And when people think about what $3 trillion is, I like to tell people, think about Jerry World in Dallas. Billion dollars, billion dollars coordinated activity for six years to build that stadium. There's only 30 of them in the United States, or 32. $3 trillion divided by a billion is 3,000. The Fed, in a matter of three months, printed $3 trillion and debased all of your monetary savings. When people look at that and the Michael Saylors of the world, they look at that and he talked about it yesterday. He's like, that woke me up. That was the band-aid being ripped off. And so when I think about Bitcoin, it's an A-B test. It's, it's simple. 
Do I want to opt into a currency regime that has a fixed supply? And, and certain economic theorists would say, well, there's benefits of this and there's costs of this. But if you look at it on the individual level, 99 out of 100 would opt into the currency regime that has a fixed supply, and the one would be a central banker that doesn't. Let me just follow up with you, Parker. I mean, I mean, the, uh, t tell us more about. Uh, I'm guessing that your belief in those, that Bitcoin will become the one currency, it'll absorb all the others. You said, right? What What are some of the implications for economics, for our economy, for inequal wealth inequality, uh, labor markets, and anything else you can think of? Yeah. So one of the articles that I've written is called "Bitcoin is One for All," and I, re I recommend that people go through and read that. I think that there's a reality. And, and oh, the article that I wrote goes into more detail, but that when you centralize the money supply, wealth concentrates. When you decentralize the money supply, wealth distributes. Um, that I think about it as when we get to a situation like 2008 and we have a massive imbalance in the housing market and the financial markets and we have a financial crisis, the Fed stepping in to print 3 trillion, 3.6 trillion over the course of four years, what that did was the economy was trying to heal. It was trying to eliminate imbalance. The Fed, by trying to attain price stability, is expressly manipulating price levels. There is imbalance in the economy by definition. Prices are trying to adjust by the free market and the Fed steps in and, and manipulates those prices. What they are actually doing is allowing imbalance this, this, this wealth inequality that exists to continue on. Um, and what happens via that function is that it doesn't just continue on and exacerbates. So there was an interview that Jay Powell did about a year ago. And there's this consistent question where he says, or they, get, they ask the Fed, well, did QE create wealth inequality? My answer is 100% yes, like 100%. When he gets asked the question, he really can't answer it well. He says, well, there's a lot of theories, um, technology, but he, but he can't craft an argument to say that, that it isn't. And in Bitcoin is one for all, I make the argument expressly that it is the manipulation of the money supply that, 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 that creates inequity. In that inequality itself is inherent to a financial system, right? Or a monetary system. If Steve Jobs creates the iPhone, like you should want him to have more money because he's good at creating things that other people value. And that in a world where you can't manipulate the money supply, the people that have the most money, by definition, are the people that have delivered the most value to other human beings. When you print money, the people that have the most money, that, that is no longer true. So in the Fed system, you can either get dollars by creating value and delivering it to other human beings, or because the Fed clicks a button and buys your financial asset. Well, who owns financial assets? Um, and so in the Bitcoin world, that will no longer be possible. Um, and I think about it as imagine a, a Nicaraguan, second poorest country in the Western hemisphere. When they buy Bitcoin, they are afforded the exact same rights as Paul Tudor Jones in New York when he buys Bitcoin. The Bitcoin network is, is non-discriminatory. All it knows is 21 million and what's a valid Bitcoin or not. And that poor person in Nicaragua is immediately elevated to the same par as a billionaire in New York. The playing field is level.
first up, you're gonna hear from uh, Travis Kling. He's, he's probably one of my favorite speakers uh, to see live, for sure. Him, Andreas, right up there as uh, one of the, my favorite speakers to see live. Um, they just they just know how to, uh, you know, get the crowd going. <laughs> and they have a good, uh, uh, you know, way of the, the way they carry themselves on stage, uh, the way they uh, interact with the crowd. Um, and just the amount of just uh, straight like fire that they drop, you know? Um, yeah. So Travis talks about, I mean, he just drops so many nuggets here. I mean, there's just so much good stuff that he talks about here. I, I don't want to spoil it for y'all. This is my favorite panel of this two day conference. Um, this is a good, probably like 20 minutes, 15. Yeah. 15, no, no, about 20 minutes. And he has so much knowledge that, um, that, that, that some of the things that I had been thinking about that I just couldn't really wrap my head around. Travis just has it right here. Just like <laughs> out in the open. Here you go. This is what, this is what his, uh, investment firm is thinking about. This is how he sees the markets. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> Downloaded into my brain. Um, I think you guys are going to enjoy this. This is something really special. Uh, and then he also talks about how, you know, okay, I'll share this real quick. I don't want, it's not going to ruin it, but he talks about how Bitcoin is just a whole nother beast, you know, and, and y'all know this, right? Cause you've been in, you've been in this space for a while now and it, you just can't predict it. Right. Um, like right now, Bitcoin's at 54 K. We knew last week it was going to go down, right? I was telling y'all, let's get, watch for that 10 K drop. Um, so we were prepared for it, but you know, somebody who is not in this space uh, or is not subscribed doesn't know what's going on and they're probably scared, right? Um, we'll come out with a throw coin talk tomorrow. So we'll talk all about what's going on and we'll further talk about where it's going and where it's headed and what we see. But Travis goes into how there's that Bitcoin is just entire beast. And unless you know the mechanics of it all and the seasons of it all and and how this 24/7 market 365 market is is uh is kind of um is kind of uh built you're 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 going to get just kind of you know <laughs> pushed out of the waters you know and so it was really it was really interesting to hear him say that cuz i totally agree with that as well um you know having having learned the hard way in 2015 2016 2017 you know, you kind of earn your stripes and then uh, you can kind of further share that um, once you learn those those stripes. But the, as the years go on, you just get further and further and further and further educated and you just become um, immune to a lot of this stuff and nothing really shakes you out anymore. OK, I'm going to share with you my favorite, <laughs> my favorite panel of, of the entire conference is this Travis Kling panel. Um, and yeah, just straight fire. Okay, I'm gonna shut up now. Enjoy the listen.
traditional asset classes prior to jumping into crypto, I can tell you that there's nothing like trading Bitcoin. Uh, trading stocks is like nothing like trading Bitcoin. Um, and uh, it has its own drivers. It has its own market structure. It has its own unique set of, of quantitative data. And it's 24 by 7. It's 24 7, 365, <laughs> yeah. which, uh, you know, adds this like entire new level of, of, of complexity and, and, and difficulty to it. And, and, and at the period of time, um, you know, first part of 2019, there was just a wide swath of, of Wall Street and, and big institutional capital that thought that this thing was over. And, um, you know, the price had, had, had declined 70 something percent off the top in December 2017. And people go, yeah, look, see, it, it, was, it was a bubble. These were tulips. And in the meantime, you're sitting there watching the amount of uh, human capital that continued to pour into the space and uh, financial capital from, from venture capital funds uh, continue to pour into the space. And, and collectively, you just saw an industry that was continuing to work and continuing to work. And um, as, as we got to the back part of 2019, it's a little more interest. Um, First part of 2020, a little more interest. You had the halving coming up in May of 2020 where the uh, Bitcoin's block reward gets cut in half every four years programmatically. Uh, people have a tendency to uh, associate their, their, their sort of like uh, historically have been run-ups in price that center around these, these halving events. And then we got to March and April of last year. And on the back of COVID, uh, you know, we had you know, the most extreme monetary and fiscal policy response in human history. Um, and that caught a lot of people's attention. And there were a lot of gold bugs, baby boomer gold bugs that called us uh, on the back of that. You know, the Fed did three trillion of quantitative easing in, in six weeks uh, back last year, three trillion. And a lot of baby boomers, gold bugs called us and they said, I've been looking at this. I didn't think it was much of a big deal. You know, now I'm interested again. Tell me more about it. Tell me what you guys do. And then in May of last year, Paul Tudor Jones, one of the most famous macro investors of all time, most well-respected macro investors of all time, he bought a bunch of Bitcoin, uh, released his thesis around why he thought that was the case. If people haven't read that, you can just, uh, his investor letter is publicly available, Paul Tudor Jones Bitcoin letter. You can Google that and read it. And he, in, in that letter, he called Bitcoin the fastest horse, uh, which is one of my all-time favorite monikers for Bitcoin. It's, it's very accurate. And uh, that, from, from our vantage point in terms of, of, of interest in the space broadly, interest in guys specifically, that was a step change uh, uh, from there. And then one domino after another started falling with, with Michael Saylor in, in the summer of, of 2020, and then PayPal, and then Stanley Druckenmiller, and then... Uh, you know, the hits just kept coming and, and that's been totally relentless over the last uh, uh, six, seven months or so. Like there's, there's no playbook for yeah. investing in magic internet money. Um, You're helping write it. <laughs> yeah. And so you just take your experience that you've had and you look at this new thing and you go, okay, how do I want to go about skinning this cat? And um it takes a while. It takes a tremendous amount of work. I, I never could have imagined I could have left 0.72 and worked a lot harder. I didn't know that was like, you know, that I could find this like extra level, but uh, definitely did and, and, and have for an extended period of time. 
hiring the right people is always a challenge. Um, uh, you know, you need this, especially at the startup level, you know, you need guy, a lot of, a lot of folks that are, uh, you know, jack of a lot of trades, masters of none type of folks, and then evolving to, okay, now I actually need a master at, you know, one thing or, or a couple things. And, um, you know, there in, in crypto broadly, for at least from my see over the last few years, you were going to drown in too much opportunity rather than starve from lack of it. So you see all of these different things that you could do and all of these different opportunities. Oh, we could partner with this guy. We could, you know, sell a piece of the business to this guy. We could do this strategy. We could hire this set of folks. We could, you know, build this operating business. We could, and, and, and that's even more true in crypto, I think, than, than other industries because, asset management and operations uh, or participants in the networks and in the communities that's gotten molded together in this asset class in a way that is unlike traditional asset classes. If I'm a hedge fund and I invest in Apple, I don't help Apple, you know, uh, you know, design the next iPhone, which is just in no way true in this asset class. And uh, um, that, that presents all kinds of interesting opportunities. So I think just, you know, developing a mission and uh, a, a set of foundations and, and principles that can guide, that are broad enough to guide everything that you do. And then trying to be thoughtful about um, which opportunities are you're best suited for to um, go and execute on and having the right people in, in place to do that. I think, uh, yeah, you know, so this is, I run an investment fund for living. So this is definitely not investment advice. Um, and I, I try not to talk too much about price and things like that publicly, but, um, you know, I, th I th there's a big question about whether or not Bitcoin is going to have a cyclical top. Uh, historically, Bitcoin has had a tendency to move in cycles and that those cycles uh, at least appear to have been centered around the halving every four years. And you can go look at charts that go all the way back to the beginning of Bitcoin and you can you know, and, and when you look at price relative to on-chain metrics, uh, a great a great website for this is lookintobitcoin.com. Great website. Um, and you can see some of these long-term cyclical things. And it's very clear that Bitcoin just has this tendency to run up a lot uh, right before and then right after a halving and then pull back a lot and consolidate and then run back up. And then, and obviously it's up like 12 million percent over its history. So it goes up a lot more than it goes down. But um so, so I think there is this very big question about whether or not uh, Bitcoin is going to continue acting like that or that because of the nature of the new market participants that have entered Bitcoin in the last, mostly in the last year, if that's going to change that nature, not only will Bitcoin not blow off to the upside, but it also won't do this down 70% to the, to the downside that Bitcoin's done, you know, a number of times in its history. So that's something to watch very closely. And in order to, in my opinion, I think in order to um, have Bitcoin pull back as deeply as it has pulled back in prior cycles, you're going to have to scare that institutional bid off uh, because those guys have really deep pockets and uh, a huge swath of that capital hasn't bought at all yet. And the ones that have bought, with very little exception, didn't get a full position on. And so they're looking to buy on dips. And in order to wipe out all of that institutional bid, they're 
almost all in the, in the investment for the exact same reason. Bitcoin is a, a non-sovereign, hard cap supply, global, immutable, decentralized, digital store of value. That's six adjectives. It's a lot of adjectives. Yeah. All of those adjectives are important. Uh, and it's an insurance policy against monetary and fiscal policy irresponsibility from central banks and governments globally. Um, and that institutional capital, without exception, is in Bitcoin for that reason, as a hedge against monetary supply inflation, an insurance policy, a life raft, credit default swaps on this largest monetary experiment in human history going awry. And so something needs to change to scare that institutional bid off. And, uh, and so that's going to be what I'm, I'm watching most closely over the coming, you know, I would say, I would say quarters. Um, Cause if we're still going gong show with the money, with the money printing, uh, it, uh, I struggle to see how that institutional bid is going to, to disappear anytime soon. The what is the U.S. government going to do thing? I get that question so often that I think it's probably uh, just unpacking a little bit more. And so, so the risk there is that uh, eventually this thing becomes big enough that it is, um, uh, uh, you know, starts to compete against the, you know, the sanctity of the U.S. dollar as as the world reserve currency. And uh, you know, historically, you know, and again, just look at the history books. You know, governments have a tendency to to kill people uh, when they mess with the money. Uh, that that's true. And uh, so, so what are they going to do with that? And, and they could, you know, regulate it into oblivion. They could tax it into oblivion. And how does that actually happen? And I pay a lot of attention to the, this, this specific risk. Um, and, and, and our politicians and our, our elected and our appointed officials, these are human beings with career histories, with uh, networks, with allegiances, um, with uh, uh, relationships with other people. And, uh, you know, for better or for worse, in, in America, the people with the power and the money decide how the rules get made. Uh, and you can hate that or you can love that, but that is what goes on here right now. And, uh, and so to the extent that folks with power and money uh, are also Bitcoiners, that serves as a buffer against super heavy-handed regulatory or, or tax actions. And, and when you look at how much ground we've covered over the last 12 months of building up that buffer against heavy-handed regulatory, you know, you know, it's like Stanley Druckenmiller is an influential guy. Paul Tudor Jones is an influential guy. PayPal is an influential institution. BlackRock is an, institu- is an influential institution. Mass Mutual uh, which has gone strong at Bitcoin. This is, a, this is an insurance company that's older than the light bulb. Uh, BNY Mellon is running strongly at crypto. That's the third oldest bank in the world, or in the United States. State Street, uh, uh, it just announced a few weeks ago that they're running hard at this asset class now. This is, that's the second oldest bank in the United States. And, you know, Elon Musk, like these, these things serve as buffers against those things. And then when you look at the... the um, uh, the political front, uh, Cynthia Loomis, uh, U.S. Senator from Wyoming, I, that is a card-carrying Bitcoiner. I mean, she likes it about as much as I like it. And she's on the Senate, she's on the Senate Banking Committee. Uh, and there's a number of, 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 of Congress people as well, too, that, uh, that are, are, are really, really big fans of this. And so whatever your risk was a year ago, that there was going to be heavy-handed regulatory or tax action from the United States. However, you you price that likelihood, that needs to come way down over the last 12 months, which naturally makes your target price go up a lot. 
Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed when he explained, you know, how he gets that question about uh, is Bitcoin going to get banned and and how he just comes over the top with <laughs> all the people with with power that now are, are Bitcoiners. <laughs> it's just the greatest answer, um, you know, and, and not so many people answer that quite so eloquently. Uh, I love the way he kind of slow rode that for everybody. <laughs> That was one of my favorite uh, panels uh, of the day, for sure. The, the last one I want to share with y'all is the uh, Bitcoin protocol panel. And this was done by uh, Jimmy Saw, Michael Flaxman, Parker White, and Jay Morris Rojas. Uh, I'm going to share with you Jimmy Song's um, panel because I think this was probably the most impressive panel of the two-day conference. And, and what, I, by, by, what I mean by impressive is... I've never seen somebody explain Bitcoin programming in under like 25 minutes. And um, this is, is like remarkable. Uh, you know, Jimmy is one of those guys that gets a lot of, you know, crap because, um, you know, he, he goes on YouTube and, and uh, he's on Tone Vase channel a lot. And Tone Vase is one of those um, those big guys that gets a lot of crap because, uh, you know, he's either loved or hated <laughs> one way or another. And, and then Jimmy song gets kind of lumped in there, loved or hated one way or another. And, um, but when you, when you stick to just the, 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 the mind and the, the intellectual side of Jimmy um, and he was at the, actually at, at the uh, Bitcoin dev party too. And uh, when you stick to just the intellectual side of Jimmy and you hear him explain these things on Bitcoin, really, 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 really smart, 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 smart man. Um, so uh, the way he was able to explain all this stuff here um, in this panel, I was just really impressed. So I thought I'd share it because I think I think for anybody out there that ever wanted to get into Bitcoin programming, listen to this. And then right afterwards, you would know, yeah, I think I want to get into Bitcoin programming because I, I think Bitcoin definitely needs more programmers. That's for sure. Right. Uh, it's not like Ethereum where there's just thousands of programmers out there, right? Uh, Bitcoin definitely needs more programmers. So uh, listen to this panel. I think it's really impressive. And I think even if you weren't going to become a Bitcoin programmer, I think you should still listen to it because he, exp he explained some really, you know, interesting and basic stuff that everybody should know if you hold Bitcoin, uh, even if it's something over your head. I mean, uh, it's still still good technical stuff that you should know about Bitcoin programming. That way you're at least uh, familiar with it. And then if somebody ever mentions it or if you ever decide to use like multisig or or if you ever see something similar to this, you at least know, you know, what they're talking about. Uh, yeah, it's important for sure. OK.
Um, I'm going to talk to you today about Bitcoin Script, and this is something that Michael mentioned. It is a smart contract language behind Bitcoin, and um, and this is more or less straight out of my book. So if you if you want to go read more about it, it's in Programming Bitcoin. Uh, hopefully, you can get something out of this and just kind of have an idea of how smart contracts work and so on. So um, Script um, is the smart contract language behind Bitcoin, and I'm I'm going to tell you all about it. So what is it? It's, uh, uh, it's not Turing complete. And this is the big difference between Bitcoin and say Ethereum. Um, Ethereum gets really complicated as a result of Turing completeness. They have to have this concept called gas, because if you're Turing complete, you can have infinite loops. And if you have infinite loops and every node is running an infinite loop, you've essentially DDoSed the entire network. So they have to have this concept called gas. And if it runs out before the smart contract is fully executed, then the miners get to keep the gas, right? Like this is one of the complaints about the Ethereum network. You have no idea if you've added enough gas to your contract. And if you fail, you just lose it. Um, Bitcoin is not Turing complete, um, or as uh, Michael likes to put it, it's not Turing vulnerable, um, and that, that's a very good thing. It's essentially a programmable way to assign Bitcoins. And this is one of the really nice properties of having digital money, is that if you can program, programmatically assign Bitcoins from one person to another, that's, uh, that's a very good thing. And you can, you can do it in lots of different ways. Um, there's certain ones that have come into as standards, and you know those are what we call addresses. They're really compressed scripts. They're mini smart contracts that every wallet knows how to do. Um, these are addresses that start with a one. Many of you have seen those on the Bitcoin network. Um, ones that start with a three. And if you're slightly more advanced, maybe you know the uh, you know Bitcoin addresses that start with BC one. Um, those are those are another form of address. We'll get to all of that um, hopefully. <laughs> if I'm speaking quickly enough. Satoshi specifically designed it to not be Turing complete. In fact, um, the pay to script hash stuff could have been done in a more elegant way, but it would have had the accidental, um, you know, non-benefit of making it Turing complete and the core developers rejected it. Um, Turing completeness is not a good thing because it makes um, execution and evaluation very, very difficult. You can't prove that there are no bugs there because in any sort of Turing complete contract, it, it, it's very difficult to analyze. Um, I think uh, Ethereum has suffered greatly. You see, you you hear about like the latest like uh, DeFi hack or something like that. It's not really a hack per se. It's just programmers that program the smart contract badly and somebody finding an exploit. And this is happening every week. Uh, you know, I write it about in my newsletter. Um, uh, like you know, another week, another DeFi hack. It's because of the Turing complete smart contract environment. And it's been there since the beginning. Um, and I, um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to go and buy 2000 Ethereum for 600 bucks back in 2014. I didn't do it in large part because I knew this would be a problem, that turning complete smart contracts would be highly vulnerable. And I thought that would com uh, make people completely lose confidence in the platform. Um, seems I was wrong on that regard. Um, people don't seem to care that much that it's completely vulnerable and that it's a, it's a poor execution environment and it's very hard to analyze. Um, they've done a lot of great marketing in that regard. And this is one of the strengths of Ethereum is that they are not very good coders. And I can tell you hundreds of ways in which Ethereum is just a terrible, terrible coding. Like it, 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 it looks like it was coded by 
um, you know, like a 19 year old college dropout, which, oh, wait, that, that's exactly what it was. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't have a very high regard for Ethereum, they, but, you know, they've managed to convince people that smart contracts are only on Ethereum or something, despite it having existed since like 1995, it being in Bitcoin since its inception and so on. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's kind of what we have to deal with. Hopefully, most of you are now um, understanding why Bitcoin is superior. All right, so how does script work? Well, script, um, there are two types of commands in script. And uh, it, it, essentially, every smart contract is a bunch of commands. Um, there are elements, uh, and they're just data. And then you have operations on, uh, on whatever uh, you know, data is already there. Um, operations do something, elements are just data. And at the end of processing all of the commands, so there's a bunch of commands, at, after you process all of them, um, if there is an element that is non-zero at the top of the stack, then the whole smart contract evaluates to true. It, it's, it's a valid smart contract. If it's uh, if it has no elements or if the top element is zero, then it is an invalid smart contract. So that's how it works. These are the rules. Um, if you know some programming, it's uh, very similar to a language called fourth. Uh, but let's, let, let's, uh, let's talk about some of these uh, operations. So here are some script operators. Um, so op dupe duplicates the top element. So whatever's on the stack, it says, look at the top element, it's X duplicate it, you get two Xs, right? Sounds reasonable. Um, op hash 160, um, hash 160 is something we in Bitcoin, um, uh, well, Satoshi kind of made it up, uh, but it's, uh, it's a combination of two cryptographically secure hashes, uh, RIPEMD 160 and SHA-256. So you do SHA-256 first and then RIPEMD afterwards, and you place that, uh, you convert the top element to its hash 160. So X becomes Y, Y equals RIPEMD of SHA-256 of X. And op check sig, this is, you know, at, sort of at the heart of what single sig uh, is all about. You have two elements and you check if the pub key and the signature are valid for this particular transaction. And if it's valid, you put a one there. If it's invalid, you put a zero there. That's it. And that's how the, this uh, you know, example script uh, uh, operator op check sig works. There's a lot of others, and there's a whole bunch of them that get used very rarely, if at all, but they're all in, within the framework of the smart contracts that Bitcoin has. All right, so um, how does it work? How, how is it sort of encoded in a transaction. Well, it's it's a bunch of bytes, and each byte is uh, either represents like the beginning of an element or not. Um, basically, uh, you interpret each byte as an integer, and you look at the integer, and there's a lookup table. Um, if it's one to seventy-five, then the next that many bytes is an element. If it's anything other than that, then you you go to the lookup table and find out which operation it is. So zero is op zero. That's not between one and 75. Five is the next five bytes are an element. Um, four, 48 in hexadecimal is, uh, you know, 16, 72, which is between one and 75. So it, uh, the next 72 bytes are an element. Op dupe, uh, seven, six in hexadecimal is I think 102. 
that's not between one and 75. So that you look, at, look it up in the lookup table and it's op dupe, the one that we saw before. Um, 9.3 is op add, A9 is op hash 160. There's a huge lookup table that you just have to know. All right, so uh, here's, here's how um, the actual smart contract gets combined. So you have two transactions. You, you have the script pub key from the previous transaction, and this is sort of like the address that's being paid to. And then the current transaction has a script sig. You can sort of think of that as the thing that unlocks this smart contract. And the, the way the execution works is that script pub key and script sig are combined. Uh, all of the elements of script sig come first, then all of the elements of script pub key come next. And after execution, if the top element is non-zero, then you have a valid smart contract. So here's, um, here are some sort of common scripts that, that we know. Um, pay to pub key, P2PK, that's what that stands for. That's, um, these are very early in Bitcoin's history. So uh, Satoshi mined using pay to pub key uh, addresses. Pay to pub key hash, these are addresses that start with a one. Pay to script hash, these are addresses that start with a three. Uh, pay to witness pub key hash, these are addresses that start with BC1 are, and are shorter. Um, pay to witness script hash, these are uh, addresses that start with BC1 and are longer. So these are all different types. And soon as we get taproot, we'll have a different type. It, it'll probably start with BC1P or something like that. And that we'll call like pay to taproot or something to that effect. Um, so we get sort of new smart contracts coming in. Um, and these are sort of the patterns that we see on the blockchain uh, that most people use. So here's a pay to pub key. Um, so you have the previous script pub key and the current script sig. So there's a, a lock transaction. Somebody sent you the money to a particular smart contract um, and you have to unlock it with a particular script sig. Um, that, that's in the current transaction. You as a private key holder create the script sig. Um, so it, this, um, I don't know what happened there. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, all right, there we go. Um, so the script pub key in this case, how, how it gets locked is literally just a pub key and op check sig. That's how it gets put out there. And you unlock it with the signature. And this is where the script pub key and script sig come from. Script is the language and pub key, it literally just has the pub key. And the uh, script sig literally just has the signature. And you combine them, um, you know, putting the script sig elements first and then the script pub key elements afterwards. And you get this three, uh, three element stack that you process one at a time. And how does that work? Well, I have a little video for this um, and I do use it for my teaching course. Um, and here's, uh, here are the three elements. You, ha you have signature, pub key and object sig. You put the elements straight on the stack and then you do object sig and then that checks for if the signature is good for that pub key. If it's true, then a one goes on and that's a valid script. If it doesn't check out, if the signature is not good for that pub, pub key, then you get a zero and that's an invalid, um, invalid uh, smart contract and therefore an invalid transaction. That's how you know. You can only generate the signature if you have the private key. And that's, that's the idea. That's, uh, that's what makes all of this run, is that you can't generate signatures unless you have the private key. And uh, you know, showing, the private, uh, showing the signature doesn't reveal your private key. That's, that's the whole key. All right, so 
Um, there's some problems with pay to pub key. This, this was the script that was used at the very beginning. Um, basically, it was too long. Um, it was only really protected by ECDSA. Um, these are sort of technical details, but um, it was, uh, it, it, it ends up being sort of vulnerable to a certain class of attack and so on. So there, there was another type of address or smart contract called pay to pub key hash. These are addresses that are the one, and it's more protected because of the use of two cryptographically <clears throat> secure hash functions. So um, here you, you have a different script pub key uh, where you're sending um, the, the money and the different script sig. And you can see that the script pub key looks different and the script sig looks different. Essentially, you have op dupe, op hash 160, hash, op equal verify, op check sig. And what you have to provide is both the signature and a pub key. And here's what that looks like uh, from sort of like a visual perspective. So you get all of those elements. You have a signature and a pub key. And op dupe, if you remember, just duplicates the top element. And that means that you get the duplicate of pub key at the top. So you see another pub key there. Um, op hash 160, that hashes the top element, which you just duplicated. So that becomes some hash. So this hash has to match that hash with op equal verify. That says, hey, are the top two elements equal? And if not, then you stop execution and the contract is invalid. Um, and if they are valid, then you get rid of it and you do op check sig, which we did before. It checks that the pub key and signature are valid. Um, and at that point, you've made a valid transaction. And you can only do this if you have the private key. And this is more secure. Uh, well, if, if it doesn't work, then you get a zero and it's invalid and so on. Um, so this, these are some of the, uh, those two that I just showed you were uh, there from the beginning of the Bitcoin network. Um, and there are a lot of other things that you could do, including something called Peter Todd's Shawan Pinata. And it's called such for a reason. Now, this is something that Peter Todd did. He's a core developer. And uh, I believe he created this in like 2012. And he created this particular script pub key. It was op to dupe, op equal, op not, op verify, op sha one, op swap, op sha one, op equal. And you have to put in an X and a Y that satisfies this particular thing. Um, and I will show you exactly what the execution looks like. So here is what that looks like. And hopefully after this happens, you, you'll realize why it's called the sha one pinata. Um, but you have uh, some X and Y that you have to find. X goes onto the stack, Y goes onto the stack. Op two dupe just duplicates the top two elements, not just the top element. Um, so you get YX, YX. Op equal, um, if Y and X are equal, then you would get a one there. Um, and then op not flips the top element from one to a zero. Op verify says is, is the top element one and then it stops the script. So the two can't be equal things. That's, that's essentially it. If they're, if they're not equal, then you get a one there. Op verify at that point says, hey, these, these, these are equal, so you're good. Op sha one does a sha one to the top element. So some sha one of y. Op swap swaps the top two elements. Um, op sha one does the same thing. You get a sha one of x. 
And op equal says, are the top two elements equal? And if so, you get a one. If not, you get a zero. So essentially, what you're getting is x and y are not equal, but sha1 of x and sha1 of y are equal. This is breaking the cryptographic hash commitment, right? Like, the, the, these, this is one of the properties of cryptographic hashes that you shouldn't be able to find two pre-images that shot, uh, hash to the same element. And uh, interestingly enough, this hash was broken in 2017 by Google. What they did was they found two pre-images that hashed to the same element. And this was a big kind of deal in the computer science world. Um, about 10 minutes after their press release, this contract, which had about three Bitcoin in it, was claimed by somebody using the very same hashes that Google found. And they, they, they claimed it. because uh, we, we think it's probably somebody from Google because there's no way you could have prepared the hashes that quickly uh, or the transaction that quickly, knowing uh, the pre-images and so on. But um, you know, th that, that was the purpose of this contract in the first place. It was to incentivize people to break these hash functions. That's, that, that was what Peter, that's why he called it the Shawan Pinata. If you can break this cryptographically secure hash function, then you will get this nice you know, sum of money. Um, and he's, uh, by the way, this wasn't the only one that he made. He made one for RipeMD160. He made this for uh, SHA-256. <clears throat> They're still out there and you can probably make like $30,000 if you can go and break them. So pretty interesting stuff. That, that's just another sort of application of how that smart contract would work. So I don't know if I have much more time. So let me just check. All right, so let me, let me move on a little bit. Um, so I wanna get into multi-save because this is something that Michael talked about and show you how that works. So this is uh, what was in the early days, the only way to do multi-sig and it's, uh, it's called bare multi-sig. And once again, you have the script pub key, which sort of is the locked, uh, you know, where you send the money and script sig, which sort of unlocks the money. And um, essentially what you had to do was put op m uh, and uh, a bunch of pub keys, op n, op check multi-sig. And you have, you have to unlock it with an op zero and then a bunch of signatures. Um, and that, that whole stack looks like that. And here's how it executes. So you take, um, what uh, op m is uh, meant to be, op m and op n are supposed to be general. So it can be op one or op two, op three, whatever. Um, so your op zero puts a zero on the stack and we'll explain exactly why, why that needs to be there in the first place. And then a bunch of signatures, it could be one, two, five or whatever. Op m will put an m on the stack um, and then a bunch of pub keys. And then op n, op n will put n on the stack. N could be seven or you know three or whatever. Um, so if it were two of three, m would be two, n would be three. Um, and op check multisig consumes a lot of elements and checks that enough of the signatures from those pub keys are correct, right? Are valid. And if all of them are valid, then op check multisig returns true. Now. There's an off by one bug, which is why we have to have the op zero. And it's, it would require a hard fork to correct. So as a result, it's been kept in there since the very beginning. 
Um, interestingly enough, all of these forks of Bitcoin or people that copy Bitcoin, like Litecoin, for example, um, none of them have corrected this book, which tells you kind of like the, um, the technical chops of the people that are running a lot of that stuff. Um, it's also um, very hard to make into an address because you need every single pub key and all of those M and N. So it, it becomes this large, um, you know, binary chunk. Um, it's a really big transaction output for the UTXO set. Um, that gets a little technical, but basically any unspent output uh, gets put into memory of every full running node. Um, and it was also abused. And this, this came up uh, more recently because of Craig Wright's uh, suing of a lot of people for, uh, you know, on their website or something like that. But this was, a uh, this was a question that I answered a few years ago on Stack Overflow. But the Bitcoin PDF into a bunch of these, uh, uh, into a large bare multi-sig transaction and encoded the white paper into 64 byte chunks using the pub key. And, um, you know, I, I had a script down there in, in the answer on exactly how to do that. Somebody figured out how to run a Unix command if you're running a full node to gather your, uh, gather the Bitcoin white paper just from your full node. It's all in the blockchain. It's a, it's a little bit abusive and a, not a very good use of the blockchain space, but it's there, it's there. All right, so that that's bare multi-sig. Um, and pay to script hash was a way to solve the problem of bare multi-sig. Um, a lot of core developers think that bare multi-sig is really bad for the network. Um, and in 2013, they created pay to script hash. Uh, to be able to make shorter addresses for multi-sig. Um, and it results in a smaller UTXO size and there's a lot more privacy as a sender does not know, um, you know what, how the funds can be spent. It could be multi-sig, it could be a SHA-1 pinata, it could be whatever, it could be any kind of um, script in there. Uh, but uh, you know, the way it, it, it works is with something called the redeem script, which is held back by the person that is um, that is able to spend it. Um, but here's kind of how it works. Um, you have a script pub key of exactly three elements, always a op1 hash, hash 160, a hash and op equal. And then you have a script sig of some number of elements. In this case, it's, uh, it's four. Um, and here's what, what, what it looks like. Here's a script sig. And then the redeem script, um, is the interesting part? Uh, wait, uh, you can you can see two of two multi-sig. That's that's what the redeem script is. But that's held back, um, and it executes this way. So you have the elements uh, from the script pub key and script sig. Op zero puts a zero on the stack. Um, the signature one, signature two, and redeem script just go on because they're elements. Um, hopefully by now you know what op hash 160 is. It's SHA-256 followed by redeem script. So it turns that into a hash. And of course the hash has to match the hash there. Um, hopefully your mind is sort of like running ahead of this video, right? That's, that's a good sign. That means you're starting to get it. Um, op equal checks that the two are equal. Um, and uh, if they are, then you put a one on top. Or if they're not, then you put a zero on top. At this point, it's invalid. If they're not equal, execution stops, nothing's valid. Uh, but if, if it's equal, it puts a one on top. Uh, what the core developers did is 
if if it's a one on top, um, they they put a special rule in. If it's exactly that sort of execution, op hash one sixty hash op equal, then the redeem script goes uh, like is interpreted as the script, and you execute those, <laughs> which is kind of hacky, uh, but that that's that's what they decided. And you can see that this ends up being exactly like opcheck multisig. Um, and it's a two of two multisig, including the zero at the bottom because of the off by one error. And then it, if, if, it, if everything is good, then you get a one. And that's, that's how multisig has been done since uh, pay to script hash. Now I could get, in, get into how SegWit works and so on, but I think I'll stop here because that sort of gives you a good idea of how uh, the smart contract in Bitcoin works, uh, language in Bitcoin works. Um, and like I said, it's purposefully sort of made simple um, and it's not Turing complete uh, so that you can't have complicated execution environments where, which are very difficult to analyze or get into infinite loops and things like that. So um, it makes it a lot easier to analyze and so on. Um, now there have been a lot of developments since, including SegWit and Miniscript and lots of other things uh, which, which we can talk about if, you, if, if you're interested. Um, but yeah, all, all of this obviously is from my course programming blockchain. I am starting that up again. So if you're a programmer and want to learn all of this stuff in a couple of days, please come talk to me. say for a first year bitcoin conference it, it hit it out of the park uh that's for sure you can tell there's a significant push to get um bitcoin industry into the state of texas uh, that's for sure i think if there's any kids that saw this that spent time actually looking at this technology and watching these panels and that stayed for for all of this stuff Man, they got a really good dive into this over the span of two days. Man, I mean, that's that's an awesome education right there uh, in those two days. Just the amount of, of, of knowledge that came uh, to that campus.
I also have to say, like, uh, I'm very shocked uh, that uh, the the faculty and the university, you know, went this far out to get all these people. Um, these weren't just like your regular, you know, blockchain, <laughs> you know, folk uh, that you would see, you know, at your typical crypto or Bitcoin conference. No, these were like your heavy hitters, right? These were your, your deep Bitcoin uh, maximalists. This is something that I would expect at a, at a Bitcoin centric conference, right? Like, like the Bitcoin conference in Miami or like at Bitblock Boom. Yeah, I was really shocked by that. I would say overall, um, this is this was a very strong, strong conference. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it next year. Hopefully they put it on for next year as well, too. There is a lot more information that came out Friday than on Saturday. So that's something to keep in mind for next year, that a lot more information it came out Friday than than um, than Saturday. Still, both days really informative. And I would say overall, Texas A&M, wow, man, UT needs to step up their game. <laughs> man, Austin is slacking, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I would say Travis Kling, man, this guy needs to be in more Bitcoin conferences. Seriously, like what is going on here? <laughs> he needs to be like at every Bitcoin conference. Uh, yeah, I think he just I think he just killed it. You guys let me know what your favorite panel was over these past two days. Uh, I, I think Travis was mine. Let me know what your favorite panel was. Uh, I'd, I'd be interested to know. Okay. Yeah, so after... Uh, couple days of some serious conferencing we'll finally be able to kick back and get into some silliness and talk some coin talk are you ready oh yeah we got the uh, crypto markets heating up <laughs> they're boiling red everybody's getting afraid out there and then tomorrow's 420 apparently there's some kind of doge apocalypse happening <laughs> a doge a doge day or something uh, we're going to do a coin talk tomorrow, so don't worry. We'll have a full recap of everything that happened. Uh, 55K Bitcoin right now, so it's it's fine. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Uh, these are the these are the days I look forward to when it starts getting crazy like this. You got people freaking out because Bitcoin fell 10K. Then you got you got altcoins pumping and then you got like Wall Street freaking out. You got uh, people entering the market asking, like, where should I put in people trading their Bitcoin to buy altcoins? It's so dumb. <laughs> That's why, you know, it's like 2017 all over again. But it's hilarious. I love it. So we'll talk all about it. We're going to do it. It's going to be a fun coin talk tomorrow. It's going to be hilarious. And uh, yeah, it should be fun. See you all next time.